Great to be together tonight. We are continuing our study of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And believe it or not, we plan to finish the book of of Ezra tonight. Uh, So that's a 10-chapter book that we're getting done with in the first month. Right on track. Hopefully we can stay on track and finish this whole course of study because if you don't get all three of these together, you don't get the theme that we're talking about, which is restoration. And we started with the restoration of worship through the leadership of Zerubbabel. And with Ezra chapter 7, we started on the restoration of the law under the leadership, of course, of Ezra the scribe. I want you to think back to what we said last week about Ezra whenever we were uh, introducing him, giving a short bio about his roles and also his methods. And you'll remember among the methods was execution of the law. I know when you hear the word execution, the first thing you think of is capital punishment, but I'm talking about execution like we would use with the executive branch of our government, someone who carries out the law on behalf of the government, on behalf of the authorities. And this was a charge that was given to Ezra to do in Jerusalem by the Persian king who is, at this time, a man named Artaxerxes. We'll do a little review because last week we read this passage from Ezra chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. This is where we got the fourth method of his being the lawgiver. Uh, Artaxerxes gave him this charge. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So Ezra was given a great deal of authority to carry out the law, that is an absolute necessity in a government. The law here was a blending of religious and civil law. It was the law of Moses. The law of Moses was the law of the land there in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And Ezra was the chief executive to make sure that it was carried out and to punish those and correct those and teach those who failed to keep it. And so tonight's lesson is just going to go through Ezra chapters 8 through 10, and we're going to look at three examples where this was done. So let's get right to it, because there's a lot of material to cover. The first example is the recruiting of priests. Uh, Have you ever left on a trip and realized as soon as you got out of the driveway that you forgot something really important? Um, Maybe you've seen the movie Home Alone, where they're on the airplane. And they realized they forgot Kevin, the kid. You know, maybe you haven't gotten that bad, but I'm sure that you've forgotten important things. Maybe you were able to go back and get them. Maybe you had to buy something when you got to your destination. Well, they had this four-month-long journey to make from Babylonia. Uh, They're on the banks of a canal or a river uh, called Ahava. 
that's where they were probably living, or that was the, the point of departure for the group that was going with Ezra. And Ezra started looking around, and he realized they forgot something very important. They forgot a priesthood. So this is in chapter 8. Look at verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there, I found there none of the sons of Levi. So there were priests, but they weren't sons of Levi. Why is that a problem? That's right. All priests had to be Levites. And not only Levites, if you want to get technical, they had to be descendants of Aaron, which is one of the families of the Levites. So they had priests. Already we see a corruption of the law before they've arrived in Jerusalem. There were probably 1,500 men there, not including the women and children. Some estimates total a number of people between five and 10,000. But among the men, with the exception of Ezra himself, there were no qualified priests among the people. This just couldn't be done without getting some priests. We know how important this was to God. There's several incidents in the Law of Moses. You go back and read in the book of Numbers about Korah's rebellion. Korah was a Levite, but he wasn't a descendant of Aaron. And he said, you know, why, why shouldn't... I and my family be able to serve the way Aaron and his family serves. And Korah started this rebellion, and it resulted in the death of Korah and thousands of others. And at the end of that, God performed this miracle that caused Aaron's rod to bud, which was testimony of the event where God put his hand of approval upon Aaron and his descendants, and that was so important, it was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. So this lineage of priesthood was extremely important. Later on, after the kingdom divided, Jeroboam, who took the northern kingdom and ten tribes with it, saw that he had a problem because the Levites went with the Davidic line in the south, which became known as the kingdom of Judah. And so what he did, according to 1 Kings 12, 31, is appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. And that's one of the problems that came to distinguish the Samaritans from the Jews in Jesus' day. The Samaritans borrowed from other tribes for their priesthood, which was contrary to the law of Moses. So Ezra needed some qualified priests, and he commissioned several trustworthy men to go on a recruiting tour, and found over 250 Levites who were willing to go and minister for the people in Jerusalem. How did he do it? Verse 18 of Ezra chapter 8 says, The good hand of our God was on him. I think there's a really important application there. When God gives us something to do, no matter how hard it is, we have the ability to do it. He makes us sufficient to follow his will. We don't serve a God who frustrates us with commandments we're unable to keep. That's not the nature of God. Our God gives us the ability to do 
what he asks. Now, what he says may not line up with what we want, or it may be challenging, or it may involve a great deal of sacrifice, but he will make a way for us to do it. A couple of passages. When it comes to giving, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, has Paul telling the Corinthians, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. That was in the context of giving, but he's using a lot of absolutes there. Every place, all things, all time, God will make you able to do it in every good work. Not only that, but you can abound in it. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, when Paul tells the Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he reminds them that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's working in you to fulfill his commandments. You just need to have the desire to do it. And he will make a way for you to do it. And so Ezra, he had that faith. He looked among these thousands of people, couldn't find a Levitical priest. Well, we need a Levitical priest. We need to follow the law. I know there are men who will go. He probably had some people saying, nobody wants to go. That's why they aren't here to begin with. We're losing time. This will be fine. We've done it before. We can do it again. Ezra says, no. If God wants us to have Levitical priests, Levitical priests we shall have. And he found 250 because God made it possible. We need to have that kind of faith. And we will do more of what God wants us to do. So that's the first example of his execution of the law. You can see how important the law was to Ezra, how important it was to get it right. Now, here's the second example. The second example is an incident where he chose fasting instead of bodyguards. Fasting instead of bodyguards. Now remember this dangerous trip. It's not just a day's journey. Traveling from Babylonia all the way down to uh, Jerusalem was a four-month-long journey. You can probably guess these journeys were very, very dangerous. Travel in ancient times was very dangerous. There were thieves, there were kidnappers, there were murderers all along the way. And they were open to ambush every step of the way. Uh, there's some place in Ezra, look at chapter 8, verse 31. He mentions the hand of the enemy and ambushes along the way. So this was a reality in the world that day. Hundreds of years later, it was still a reality, which is the basis for the parable of the Good Samaritan. That wasn't an unusual occurrence, the setting or the premise of the parable of the Good Samaritan. There were many times where a man was just going on a, a route. Maybe it's a well-traveled route and could be overtaken by thieves and beaten within an inch of his life and left for dead. And so they faced these dangers. Not only that, but adequate accommodations along the way were practically non-existent. We have trouble going all the way back to Ezra's day, but historians from ancient Rome criticized inns in their day for their filthy sleeping quarters, extortionate innkeepers, gamblers, 
thieves, and prostitutes. So they didn't want to go into areas like that. They had children with them. They wanted safety. And so that's the background of this second example. They're about to make this very dangerous trip. Now look at Ezra chapter 8, beginning in verse 21. This is how Ezra decided to face the dangers. He proclaims a fast. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. This goes back to chapter 7, verse 6, when King Artaxerxes had granted Ezra everything that he needed for the, for the trip. And he did not include a band of soldiers to protect him along the way. And the reason for that is stated here in Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 and following. Ezra told him that God would protect them. We don't need any bodyguards. And so now he's saying, I was embarrassed when the people started being concerned for their safety. I was embarrassed to go back to the king after proclaiming my faith and asking him for bodyguards, for soldiers, for horsemen. So we fasted and we prayed and we put our trust in the Lord. And he followed through on his promise. Now, an application of this, I feel like we need to be careful. And we need to use our common sense, okay? God gives us a lot of things. He protects us providentially. Uh, he gives us a world in which to live that's full of beauty. He gives us gracious people all around us. He gives us government protection. And He also gives us common sense. I remember a dorm devotional at Fried Hardeman when I was a student there. I, I probably told you all about this before. Uh, this guy was talking about a similar subject, but it lacked common sense. He was telling people, if you trust God, when you go to Memphis, leave the doors of your car unlocked. He said, you ought to leave your dorms unlocked. He said, that's what I do. I leave my dorm unlocked, and uh, I believe God will protect me. Well, that night some guy went and stole his motorcycle helmet, just to make a, a point. And he was very angry about that. But, you know, God gave him the lock on the door, too. You know, and, and he tried to give him common sense, but he ignored it. He was, he was a person of faith. He was a believer, but he was also naive. So we need to be careful in applying what happened then to our daily life. If God has given us protections, if He's given us common sense, if He's given us ability to, to be safe, we ought to use what He's blessed us with. However, sometimes, not just sometimes, many times, we're just too cowardly and afraid. We have to take risks 
to do the work God has given us to do. This job Ezra was given was very dangerous. Travel down to Jerusalem, face the enemies down there, establish the law. He took the risk. And he was only able to do it because he believed that God was with him. Now we've been given a huge challenge to go into the world and preach the gospel of the whole creation, to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There are parts of the world that are very dangerous that need the gospel. We have to take risks in order to do that. We support a man in the Middle East right now who trains preachers in two preacher training schools in that area. They go out into some of the most dangerous parts of the world. They can use their common sense. Their governments are not behind them. They can try to be as safe as possible, but in the end, if they're going to make it, it's going to be by the hand of God and the prayers of His people. We need to take risks. And, and we live in a free country. It's safe to do the Lord's work, at least for now. Our biggest fears are mockery and rejection and maybe somebody taking our tax ID away from us. It's really not anything compared to what Ezra and the others were going through. Who are our quote-unquote soldiers and horsemen that we're calling to hedge against the risks that God has asked us to take. Can we turn to prayer and fasting? Do we trust God enough to plead with Him, plead for His help, to do the work that we've been given to do? These are important questions that we need to ask. And so the second example, very interesting one, where He chose fasting to execute the law instead of bodyguards. Let's go to the third one. We'll spend the most time on this one. The third example is kissing sin goodbye. And I use that strange turn of phrase on purpose because of the nature of this third example. It involved intimate relationships. Let's look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. After these things had been done... The officials approached me, Ezra writing this says, and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So the leaders that the people should depend on, as an example, they were the worst offenders in this. Now it's going to take a little time to figure out what's going on here with these unscriptural marriages. And so let's talk about what it isn't and what it is. First of all, the problem here is not interracial marriage. Um, some people go back to this passage as some kind of proof text against interracial marriage. That's not what's going on here. 
I know that the term holy race is used here. It's not the best translation for what the meaning is. A better word would be holy children or offspring or descendants or posterity because the point is God had made a covenant with the family of Abraham. And it was the family of Abraham who was to bring the Christ into the world. He was to be a son of David. And when you bring people from other families, this isn't about skin color or nationality, it's about faith and, and about a covenant made with a, with a man and his family. When you bring people in from other families, you destroy that bloodline that was key to the covenant made with Abraham. And so that's what the issue is with the holy race, the holy posterity of Abraham. He was told, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God means what he says. Whenever he renewed the covenant after the sin of the golden calf, he told Moses that this covenant I'm making is with you and with all of Israel, Exodus 34, 77. He wasn't making it with the Hittites. And he wasn't making it with the Jebusites and Perizzites and all the other ites. He was making it with Israel. Another thing is, this is not a passage on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There are plenty of passages like Matthew 19, 6 through 9 that you could go to to study that subject. Uh, I grow weary of people falling back on this passage as some kind of direction on how to handle the problem of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That's not what this is about. That's not what Ezra has in mind at all. In fact, uh, he is ordering divorce here, so uh, it's not a akin to the subject of New Covenant teachings on divorce. It's also not about the problem of priestly celibacy. You know, priests are mentioned here as having married. The problem wasn't that they got married. Levitical priests, almost all of them, were married and had families. That's how you had a bloodline. I mean, it was a necessity for the descendants of Aaron to marry and have families. Otherwise, they'd run out of priests pretty quickly, right? And so, you know, you can't go back and support some Catholic doctrine of priestly celibacy by saying, Ezra was angry with the Levitical priests for getting married. It's whom they were marrying that was the problem. It was a violation of Moses' teaching about intermarriage with foreign, unbelieving, idolatrous wives. Let's look at the law, how it's spelled out in a couple of passages starting with Exodus 34, 11 through 16. I don't have this up on the screen, but uh, I'll, read, I'll read it here. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice their gods, 
and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Now, what aspect of marriage is he concerned about here? Racial purity? Cultural purity? What's he concerned about? Influence. Idolatry. If you marry people of other cultures, they will sway you away from the true and living God. This was a time when Israel was the only nation who respected and worshipped Yahweh. They were the light to all the nations. The influence needed to go in one direction here. And no one is more influential over you than your spouse. And so God taught against this. It's more succinct in Deuteronomy 7, 3. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Pretty plain. Everybody knew it. These nations they were marrying into not only worshipped other gods, but along with the false idolatrous worship were awful, atrocious practices like human sacrifice. And we see the fruits of this intermarriage in the last days of Judah when kings like Manasseh married foreign wives, maybe as treaties with other countries, had multiple wives and some of them from other places, and uh, would sacrifice his children to Molech or Chemosh or some of these Canaanite gods. And we all know what happened to Solomon. He had a thousand wives. I don't know if it was 700 wives, 300 concubines, or the other way around. But he had a thousand wives. Somehow he loved them. I don't know how you could keep track of a thousand enough to love them, each and every one of them. But they turned away his heart from the Lord. Because they expected him to worship their gods. He didn't influence them, they influenced him. So that's the issue here, and that's why he took it so seriously. They would not be able to establish the law in Jerusalem with all these foreign idol-worshipping people coming in in violation of the law of Moses. So what does Ezra do? How does he execute the law? In the other examples, we don't get a lot of detail. But in this third example, we get some steps that he took to turn the people around. And if you're a teacher, if you're an elder, if you're an influencer for Christ, pay attention to this. This is how you can turn sin around in your own life and how you can lead others to turn around in their lives. Four steps here. Number one, he grieved. Look at uh, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Now, it wasn't until I grew a beard that I understood how bad it hurt to pull hair from your beard. I mean, if, if your son reaches up and grabs your beard and tugs it, that hurts. It hurts bad. 
So he's pulling hair out of his head, which, you know, I try to keep what little I've got, you know, but he's pulling it out, pulling it out of his beard, tearing his clothes. And these were all cultural ways of showing grief. He was grieving sin. Sin grieves God. Isn't that interesting? A couple of times in the Bible, we're told that your sins break God's heart. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. In the days of Noah, it grieved God that he had made man. Over in the New Testament, Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. God feels grief over our sins, and sin ought to affect us the same way. But it ought to be a productive grief. I remind you of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So it's not good enough just to feel bad about what what you've done. But you need to be a Peter who has enough faith in God to believe that you can be redeemed and come back from that sin. But the grief is an important first step. So you see Ezra leading the way by grieving. And this public grief was an example to his people. He was trying to show them how badly they had sinned against God. Number two, the next thing, he and the others trembled at the word of the Lord. If you pay close attention, many of the books of the Old Testament use a a literary device called reiteration. I think Tim may have gone over this when he taught us the Psalms, and he went over some poetic devices in the Psalms, and one of them was reiteration. Repetition of a phrase. When you see an unusual phrase repeated over and over again, it's a key theme in the book. Now, I want you to look at this. This is very interesting to me. Uh, Look at Ezra chapter 9, verse 4. All who trembled at the words of God, of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around Ezra. Now, one of the unusual words in there that I don't recall reading a whole lot in the book of Ezra is the word trembled. But you start seeing it again and again and again. Chapter 10, look at verse 3. The leaders suggest a plan of action that came from the council of Ezra and those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Now twice here we have people trembling at the commandment of God. And then later in that chapter, we're in chapter 10 now, verse 9, the people gathered together in the open square, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. So they were out in the rain, it was cold, they had that that shivering going on, but the shivering on the outside symbolized the shivering that was going on on the inside over how they had grieved God by breaking His commandment. If you don't respect God's Word enough to tremble when you break it, you're not going to change. God's leaders have to preach and teach so that people tremble at the Word of God. Yes, we need comfort and encouragement from the Word, but we also need the other side. Paul said, Behold, the 
kindness and the severity of God. And here they're seeing the severity. Number three, what else did he do? He confessed sin. Look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. Study this confession. When you confess sin to God in prayer, learn from this. Follow this as a model. Mark this and remember this. Ezra 9, verse 6. Oh my God, he prays, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Let's keep reading here. Verse 10. Now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are in entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations. They've filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. We're getting less than we deserve. There's no bitterness, no rationalization, no excuses. This is what true confession looks at. He's humiliated. He's embarrassed. And do you really think Ezra was a great sinner here? You see how he's including himself with the people? He's leading the way. And the results are true repentance. That's the last part of it. The people repented. How did we know? Well, if you look at the first part of chapter 10, you see that they make a covenant with God. That's the fruit of their repentance. They make a covenant with God that they're going to, to put away all the wives and the children according to the counsel of the Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the law, they say. They do a very hard thing. They change. They commit to doing the right thing. And with that... The book of Ezra ends rather abruptly. You'd think there'd be some kind of resolution, some kind of conclusion, but it just cuts off short right there. And it's hard to know what to make of that. One thing we could say is Nehemiah is part two of what's happening, so we're going to see more of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, and of course Nehemiah will join him and contribute his role. But also, we need to look at restoration as a process. And here we see Ezra stopping this book in the middle of the process 
which is where we are. What keeps you going when you're in the middle of the process? Well, there's this little line we skipped over pretty quickly in chapter 9, verse 8, which I want to come back to at the end of this lesson. Listen to what Ezra says in this prayer. Brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving. When you're in the midst of restoring the New Testament, restoring your spiritual life, restoring your devotion to God, restoring your family, restoring your relationships, and it's hard, this is the prayer that ought to be on your lips. Grant us a little reviving. And that will be enough. Because we know that's a foretaste of the end where God says in the book of Revelation, Behold, I make all things new. If we keep that hope in our hearts, then we look at that little reviving as just a, a glimpse of heaven. And it's enough. Enough to keep us going. So that's the end of the book of Ezra. We're going to get into Nehemiah next week, Lord willing, and talk about the restoration of the city. Spend uh, more time on Nehemiah than the other books. It's a little bit lengthier and more to cover. Thanks for your attention tonight.